This program is sponsored by Wicked, Chronic, and Natick, Massachusetts. Located on 185 Worcester Street, right on Route 9, they can be reached at 508-545-8105 or at wickedchronicvendorcommerce.com. Wicked Chronic is a boutique-style retail shop that focuses on selling counterculture products such as Wiccan cannabis cultures coming together in a unique setting. You need something for that special spell? Go on down to Wicked Chronic in Natick, Massachusetts and speak to Beverly. Tell them Dr. Chris sent you. Check them out today. mother's love. She's such a bright child. Look at the color of those cheeks, Mark. But on Friday the 13th, this mother's love is deadly. We do what we have to do and then Allison will be safe. Mommy Dearest made a deal with the devil. I, what is the curse? It's got to do something. Every time she takes a life, her dying daughter lives another day. Somebody knows. Somebody knows what we've been doing. Another day of terror on Friday the 13th, the series where the price of life is death next week. And welcome to the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the cancelled television shows in the horror, science fiction, and fantasy genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Zeneca. And joining us for the final two episodes of Friday the 13th, the series, uh, season one, we have Elise Wax back on the show with us, the author of Curious Goods, the guide to the Friday the 13th television series. Hello. Thank you for joining us once again, Elise. I know you've had a rather busy schedule the last few months. Yes, I have. Um, but thanks for having me back on. It's my favorite topic to discuss. So, <laughs> And this week's episodes are episodes uh, 35 and 37. No, it's like I've never seen a season have this many episodes in it other than animation before. It's rather unusual. Yes, episodes back 25 in, and 26. Back in the 80s um, and 90s, the average season, season length was 26 episodes. Oh, wow. They definitely have shortened that to 22 now, with the exception of when they did 24. Yes. they For the most part nowadays, they're 22 um, or, you know, like 10 or 12. Yeah, and I noticed the reason why they do 10 or 12 is because of uh, budget constraints. Um, it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of... Um, just the the economics of television have changed so much um and it's a way to get more shows on air and it's also um a way to kind of condense storytelling especially because nowadays there's a lot of shows that are um uh that are like either anthologies or anthology like um or because they run them without, it's just different the way cable channels are run. I'm sorry, I'm like, <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah, and and the uh, recent advent of the mid-season break, ah, I I don't yeah. like that whatsoever. No, I I no. that that started within the last couple of years, like two or three years. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. hated that uh, whole like. 
Now, the mid-season finale of The Walking Dead, or Gotham, or whatever we could come up. It's like, what? They never did a I... promo like that for a mid-season break. They just had it happen so we could make way for, like, the Oscars or the Super Bowl or Christmas. I I think it was Walking Dead that really popularized the mid-season break because they were the ones who were really pushing it gung-ho, and now everybody does it. It's... Oh, and, and I love The Walking Dead, but uh, having two different episodes that seem like a season finale in a single season it in my head it just kind of confuses is the season seven is the season eight or wait a minute are we in season nine now it, because it seems like it's the end of a season and that eight yeah. episodes or whatever is that full complete season just because it's formulated like that their arcs are much shorter much more condensed and uh, it doesn't give you that overall story when you break up the entire storyline into two separate chunks. Yeah. But sometimes I think it's good because sometimes I think shows need to be shortened. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, like Walking Dead. Mrs. Yeah, Zeneca, you yeah. have the episode synopsis for us for this episode. Did you have something else besides what was written on IMDb? Because it's a sentence on IMDb. I know, uh, I know. I mean, uh, I could just summarize it for you give us yeah if you summarize the plot line in at least uh two sentences that should be on imdb (laughs) um what a mother wouldn't do is focuses on a crib a baby crib that was discovered in the titanic um crash way back in the day and it now carries a curse with it where if you kill enough people in water um, within a certain amount of time set around the anniversary of the Titanic sinking, then the baby that lives in the crib will be healed of whatever health concerns it has and live a long, normal life. Yeah. Yes, and and this, di- this episode was originally aired on July 18th, 1988. Yep. I was not a fan of this episode. I really was hoping it was going to be more like the movie Grace, which was uh, written um, by Adam Green, not directed by Adam Green, but written by Adam Green, who's written and directed the the Hatchet films, most recently Victor Crowley, Hatchet 4. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I like this episode. I thought this I was so. uh, pretty interesting with the Titanic references. I think, Mr. Zeneca, yeah. if, as long as you don't pop yet between now and when you can track it down, find Grace and watch it before the baby comes. <laughs> <laughs> I will try. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. so, I do have some tidbits on the Titanic, though. Oh, uh, when, yeah. We want to get into that. Yeah, why don't we get into those, uh, what do we get when they, um, when they get to the, uh, the part about the Titanic? Um, sure. Let's start with our notes for the episode. Um, this is one of the rare episodes that we begin with a flashback with Uncle Lewis. And the woman who comes looking for the cradle, did we see her in the inheritance? Is she the wicked stepmother? Um, you know what? I don't believe so. Let me double check. I thought she uh-huh. was, but here's the thing I don't understand about the episode whatsoever. Okay, she goes in to buy the cradle from Uncle Lewis, but she oh, doesn't her, buy yeah. the cradle later on, years later, her friends bought it for her in secret, be keeping in hiding? No. no, 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 what happened is she was already pregnant, and she was attracted to the cradle, 
You know how evil objects tend to attract those evil people. Uh, she was attracted to the tra to the cradle in the store, but she said she didn't have enough money to buy it. And so Uncle Louis says, well, things have a way of working themselves out, and uh, invited her to come in and talk about the history of the cradle. And then during her baby shower, uh, six months later, uh, her troop of friends all pool their money together, and they buy the cradle from Uncle Louis' shop for her. So how much time passes between when she meets Uncle Lewis to presently in the show right now when uh, the gang has to go get it? Well, well, let's see. It's, there was, it's, it's, six, it's six months between the time that Leslie first visits Uncle Lewis to the time that um, of her baby shower, which is weird because she's pretty damn pregnant in that first scene. She is. She is way more than just three months. Yeah. Um, but then when they finally, when our group starts to go and get it back, it's less than a year, I believe. Yeah, I, I think the, the baby is supposed to be less than a year old because it's the anniversary of the Titanic sinking, and they would have missed the deadline had the baby been more than a year old. Yeah, there's a, there's a one-year deadline. You have to kill, I think it was seven people. Yeah. Um, by the time that um, the anniversary of the sinking. And so right in the beginning is when, you know, after she gets the cradle and she's kind of sitting, reading Rosemary's Baby on a park yeah. bench uh, in front of a lake and uh, her, you know, the, the target of it is a jogger who ends up being a doctor and uh her husband knocks the guy on the head and falls into the into the lake, and so thusly he was killed in water. And she says, "That's number four, my love." Mm -hmm. So it's very dramatic, and and of course you can see the the look of grief and confusion, these emotional turmoil internally happening with the father because he doesn't really want to kill people, but he yeah. does love his daughter, so. Yeah, stuck between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> you know, make a deal with the devil, and you know you're you got to do some terrible things. I thought that was uh, Rosemary's Baby that she was reading. <clears throat> yes, yes, the yeah. novel Rosemary's Baby. I thought it was funny that the uh, the gang is like, we're running out of room in the vault, but we have two more seasons of the show to do. <laughs> <laughs> and they have so many huge things that you never see in there. It's hilarious. Like the, uh, oh, yeah. the, the, the the wood chipper. Yep, oh. the wood chipper or the magic cabinet or the um, the oh, dentist the, chair or electric chair. Yes, yes. The 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 spinal brain drainer, whatever yes. that one is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like, where the hell did lots they put of that? Things. <laughs> like, where the hell would you put that? <laughs> Uh, and then of course draw we find a magical out, circle around it and oh, hope for the best. And then like what we find out in the next episode, it's it's still big enough for two people to fall asleep under a hypnotic spell. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's not the you kind of just have to accept it and go with it. Although it is funny in the third season when they find the um, the crypt underneath 
And uh, they're like, oh, look, we can store all the rest of our stuff in here. And I'm like, Where, what the hell have you been doing for the last two seasons? <laughs> oh. <laughs> they're, they're putting, like, uh, cursed objects inside cursed objects on top of cursed objects, lining the walls with them, and uh, uh, I don't know about the, the dentist chair or the bigger items. You know, some, yeah. some of those don't even look like they'd fit through the door. Oh, absolutely not. I don't know how they would even get them into the shop. <laughs> now, the actress who plays um, the mother mm-hmm. is... Uh, Lynn, McCorm- Lynn, Lynn McCormack. Lynn McCormack. Sorry, I almost said Leslie Kent. That's the name of her character. Um, yeah. Lynn McCormack. And, uh, it's she- Lynn Cormack, sorry. Lynn Cormack. She has a... Uh, she has like a... Uh, she- she has like a bit part career, and yes, yeah, she is Irene Sims in The Heritage. Yeah, um, but she has had a long uh, bit part career, which goes up until pretty much this very day. She was on Beauty and the Beast, the revival of Beauty and the Beast, and Warehouse Thirteen, Mutant X, which we've mentioned like numerous times. Everyone on this show has been on Mutant. Every bit part actor on this show has been on Mutant X. <laughs> it's because they probably use the same casting director and casting directors have a tendency to become friends with actors and say, oh, I think you'd be really great for this or, you know, whatever. She was also one of my and, favorite uh, uh, really god-awful shows I hope we cover one day because it's so bad, it's so much fun. Uh, Dracula the series, which only lasted for one oh, season. Yeah, I barely remember that. I've only seen little bits of that. But yeah. Once upon a time, you could actually go to Best Buy um, and other like DVD shops um, and find like the first like the two discs, uh, the two different case, the two different uh, DVDs that would contain all twenty four episodes of Dracula the series, and they were like in <laughs> Best Buy's little four ninety nine section, and I bought both of them, but then I got rid of them. I don't know why the hell I ever did that. And now I kind of <laughs> want to rewatch it again for this show, and then you should do like a whole episode guide for it. <laughs> <laughs> this this cradle has a very interesting design. Uh, they they say that it's an Edwardian cradle, and uh, it's not like painted or anything. It, it's very unfinished looking, like it had once had a paint job, but now it doesn't. And uh, it it does have that look that it has been waterlogged in the past, which is very cool. I like how they did that effect on the wood. But the the cradle, the baby must. Stay in the cradle. So the babysitter makes this note that you know she even has to change the baby in the cradle. So I, I guess there's no real wiggle room on that. You know whether the the baby has to be in the cradle or else the baby is dying. Otherwise, yes, the cradle won't give it the magical effects to keep it healthy. Yeah, yeah. The first the first death was the jogger. The second death. Yeah, I, I mean we can technically we can... the fourth. Yeah, technically the fourth is the first one. First one we actually see. <laughs> yeah. The uh, Roby and uh, Mickey and uh, Ryan stake out the house like the Hardy Cousins from Hell. It's usually the person who possesses the object or is going to like benefit from the curse. It, it's, it more seems like the baby should be like evil than the mom should be. Well, I think that the idea is that, you know, the the baby is you know an innocent and the parent is is evil for the child um the parents were leslie 
if I remember correctly, was it was having she was having a hard time getting pregnant, and so this was like her miracle baby, but it was a high risk pregnancy. Um, so she was doing everything she could to to keep the baby alive, basically. Ah, uh, okay. So I mean, I don't know. It doesn't really bother me because you know people are always like, "Oh, but babies are so pure and innocent," and and all of that. So. Yeah, the the second death it was the uh, superintendent. Uh, they call yeah. the superintendent over because the baby starts, you know, really crying and not being able to breathe, and so they realize that they need to actually commit a, a murder right away. So they call the super up because of a burst pipe or something, some sort of excuse, and they end up killing him and and throwing him into the pool so he could actually die in the water. And I think he drowned him in the toilet. Oh, that's right, they did. They did drown yeah. him in the toilet, but then they dumped his body in the pool. The uh, nanny, for a little while, is giving off this very uh, hand-that-rocks-the-cradle vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she loves the baby as, as much as, as if it were her own. Exactly. And that's what, uh, that, what, that's what made me think of that movie with, uh, I think it was uh, Rebecca DeMore. Yeah. And I think it's funny, Jack's investigating Dr. Green, and I'm thinking, Dr. Green from ER? <laughs> I mean, it, it is a common name. Yeah, yeah. To be fair. <laughs> I did not even make that connection. But <laughs> okay, so Mickey and Ryan actually saved the babysitter Debbie when the father uh, tries to drown her in her bathtub. You know, and that's a pretty intense scene. You know, where she's just you know going to take a bath, she's relaxing, and uh, the father comes in in a face obscuring mask and tries to drown her very severely. Her screams, you know, uh, reverberate through the hallways, and and Mickey and Ryan just happened to be in the hallway at the time, hearing the screams. Oh, as you are. Yeah, you know, as you're stalking your, you know, cursed object home. And what what Friday the 13th would it be without a shower or bathtub scene that results in a killing? I mean, Uh. we waited 25 (laughs) episodes for it, didn't get any nudity, but hey, it's still a Friday the 13th related uh, trope. (laughs) Yeah. The beautiful, the beautiful hot chick takes off her clothes, takes a bath or a shower, and the serial killer tries to kill her, i.e. Jason, or in this case, the, the father of the baby. Now, was it yeah. at this point in the episode where Debbie pretty much already relayed to them that she kind of knew what the baby needed? That a little bit later. She, it's right after they, right after they try to kill her and, and Ryan comes in and saves her, they take her back to the store and, um... She overhears them, overhears the Curious Goods crew talking about about what the curse is and what the implications are and stuff like that. So she sneaks out to go and try to save the baby. Yeah, so she, you know, hears about the curse, you know, that they need seven people and, and uh, uh, figures out what she feels is in the best interest for the child. Mm-hmm. And uh, goes back to uh, the house and confronts the parents over the child. In so doing, she's trying to meet the mother on the docks. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mother tries to kill her and Ryan at the same time. You know, So she thinks she's very successful at, at getting the last two people um, when in fact she actually got none. As we mm-hmm. come to find out a little later in the episode. 
Uh, yep. And uh, ultimately, um, I don't know if this is skipping ahead too much, um, but ultimately the Leslie does uh, kill herself in order to, you know, the, the ultimate sacrifice in order to save her baby. So in the end, I mean, I guess you could say that is what a mother should do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the title goes along with that, you know, what a mother wouldn't do. Yeah, yeah. And it's very herself and shooting her husband and having him kind of be covered in in fish tank water. You know, yeah, that water uh, enough. Yeah, that's water, you know. It, he probably didn't drown cuz he was shot, but he's yeah. died in water. Um and that fulfilled the total of seven people. So, you know, mm-hmm. four people actually killed that we see, but a total of seven people. And the curse has been fulfilled. Yep. She does something very similar to, uh, in the previous episode, Pipe Dreams. Uh, Ryan's father sacrifices himself to end the curse to save his son's life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to take on that, that smoke from the pipe. Yeah. He released it, and you know he sees his son going to be killed by it and, and he pushes him out of the way and takes it on himself. Which, you know, if you are a good father and you made a terrible, terrible mistake, you should actually be able to sacrifice yourself to fix it. Mm. Yeah. So the Titanic actually uh, crashed on April 14th, 1912. So they had up until April 14th, 1912 at you know whatever time of day that was, in order to get all of the murders completed by. Mm-hmm. But as I was doing my research on, on the Titanic, uh, there, of course, isn't a cradle. Of course, there isn't a, you know, a baby was saved by any sort of cradle thing. But right. there were actually a lot of children that were saved uh, through, the, um, through being passed on to the lifeboats, you know, the whole women and children first. Mm-hmm. In uh, first class, the youngest female survivor was 13-year-old, 5 months, 26 days, a Miss Lucille Polk Carter. The youngest male survivor in first class was a Master Hudson Trevor Allison, which was 11 months, 8, eight days old. In the second class realm, the youngest female survivor was Miss Barbara Joyce West at 10 months, 22 days. And the youngest male survivor uh, was Master Vilojo Unto Johannes Hamelsen. Hamelsen? Say that three times real fast. <laughs> I know. There's a lot of uh, German letters here. Uh, seven months, 17 days old. And in third class, the age of the youngest survivor was a Miss Elizabeth Gladys Dean. And she was the youngest survivor overall at two months 13 days. So I think that was the character that was really supposed to be portrayed as the one saved by the cradle. Mm -hmm. And then the youngest male survivor in third class was a master Assad Tunis. And he was five months old, seven days. Hmm. Yeah, there was uh, 109 children on the Titanic and 56 survived. A good portion of them survived, actually. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> For being a tragedy with over 1,500 lives lost, having half the children actually survive is a pretty good ratio there. 
Now, Lise, yeah. did you uh, did you have a chance to? Because I noticed in your book you have a quote from Lynn Cormack. Did you interview her? Yes, I did. How long was the interview? Because you only have like a little bit of section in here. It wasn't super long, and I'm trying to remember because you know, I, I interviewed her probably three or four years ago. But she didn't have a lot of memories about it because, again, it was so long ago. Um, so, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of good stuff from it. But did she enjoy her time working on the two episodes that she was in? Because she doesn't, uh, according to INAB, oh. she didn't come back for any more. Yeah. I mean, she definitely, um, you know, I, everyone I spoke to, I didn't speak to anybody who had anything negative to say. Everyone said that it was a great crew. Um, everyone was extremely professional. Everyone knew their shit. I mean, sorry, knew their stuff. Or we're on a they, podcast. They, you, you can know. swear. You, we're, you can curse here. Yeah, we're on a okay. podcast. We, okay. I mean, Mr. Zedica nearly had an orgasm in the upcoming episode yeah. of Spawn talking about uh, sexual subject <laughs> matter Savage from Dragon. Savage Dragon. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, it's uh, everyone just has nothing but wonderful things to say. So. Okay. Good. We're going to take a quick break and uh, play and then the promo for the next episode of Friday the 13th, the series, entitled Bottle of Dreams. We'll be back just in a couple seconds. Minutes. Seconds. Something like that. What starts as a celebration ends in horror on Friday the 13th. Mickey, Brian, get out! Trapped in a tomb of terror on a one-way trip to hell. We haven't got much more time. Your worst nightmare relived. This nightmare continues over and over until the terror causes their hearts to burst. If this doesn't scare you, nothing will. Friday the 13th, the series. Next week, scream all you want. And we're back with the Dead TV Podcast with the final episode of Friday the 13th, the series, season one, Bottle of Dreams, and Mr. Zeneca has the episode synopsis for us. Okay. Uh, episode 26, Bottle of Dreams, originally aired July 25th, 1988. Jack tries to rescue Ryan and Mickey when they're locked in the vault with the cursed urn that conjures up torturous nightmares. Now, we didn't uh, mention it back in May, uh, which I think there was only one episode that aired in May. may have been two episodes. Um, they kind of broke up the last few episodes of the season through May, June, July to stretch it out. Do you know why they stretched it out for so long, uh, Elise? Um, as far as the airing? Oh, it was because um, in 1988 there was a major writer strike. That's right. In Hollywood. And so a lot of the, you know, all of, most of the writers on the show um, were American writers, even though it was a Canadian-American co-production. And so most of them were on strike. And so that was how we got a clip show after only 25 episodes. That explains it. Okay. Um, but uh, back on uh, the... Uh, I believe this was a Friday the 13th in May of 1988, but I could be wrong. Um, back in May, uh, in conjunction with the Friday the 13th TV series, Paramount released Friday the 13th Part 7, uh, The New Blood, which I may or may not have mentioned back in the May episode that we covered for the show. Um, and then uh, there would be, a uh, again, one more movie in 1989, and that would be The Killer of the Franchise, uh, no pun intended. Um, 
Well, not really, because number eight would have been Jason Takes Manhattan, and then there was uh, Jason Lives, which is number nine, which would be the one that um, that um, John LeMay was in. Well, uh, then, Jason Goes to Hell. Yeah. Yeah, Jason I'm, Jason Lives was part not, four. I mean, part five. I mean, part six. Ah, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Jason Lives was part six, but yes, John Dieterman LeMay would come back after uh, uh, he he uh, he would leave the he would leave his cousin to continue looking for cursed objects, and he would go and father some uh, baby Jessica with some woman in New Jersey, and then have to save her from Jason Voorhees. I I that's what I believe what happened. He just couldn't take it anymore, so he changes his name to Stephen. <laughs> but we'll get there eventually. We might even do a film dungeon commentary podcast episode of Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday in honor of John D. LeMay, who accepted my friend request on Facebook, which I'm very happy about. But I haven't been able to reach him to have him on this podcast, so. I'm assuming he likes Friday the 13th because I see him posting about it. So he's not like an actor who's like, oh, I can't ever talk about that show. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, eventually, hopefully. We'll maybe, hopefully. I would love it to okay. have him on the show. Um, one thing I am uh, quite concerned about is, um, and maybe Elise, you could, you know, you have some story or something, you know something. Um, back in 2008, and I bring this up because we are, we are at the end of season one of Friday the 13th. Back in 2008, one of the first guests I had on Radio of Horror, because I started in October of 2007. So early 2008, I had Roby on the show. And she was an absolute delight to talk about, talk with. Uh, we talked a lot about her music, but we did talk about Friday the 13th a lot as well. Um, at the time, she had pushed me to try and reach out to Chris Wiggins to have him on the show. I unfortunately did not do that hard enough, and we lost Chris last year. But uh, I've never been able to reach John, but she was more than happy to talk about Friday the 13th, you know, and we talked about her music. And then, like, the last few years, she's kind of disappeared from social media, so I'm, I'm hoping everything's okay. Um, when I last, last time I spoke to her, oh my gosh, it was probably a couple of years ago. Um, but I think it's just, you know, she got busy with, she was doing a lot of music and a lot of, um, photography stuff. Um, and I don't know, maybe she, she has a new fella in her life or something. Maybe she's traveling, Mm -hmm. you know, she's so... Um, last time I spoke to her, you know, she was doing fine, but again, now that I think about it, it was probably two years ago. Yeah, that's around the time that I noticed a lot of her social media has completely stopped, and I was kind of like, oh, that usually only happens with celebrities when some life-altering thing has happened, and I'm hoping it's nothing bad, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that she probably just is off doing something fabulous. Hopefully. That, that's Maybe what we're hoping. We're hoping for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bottle of Dreams um, has, what, I think one, two, three, four clips from previous episodes in it? Uh, um, let's see. That, no, there's more than that. Yeah, I think there's five. There's there's a clip from Cupid's Quiver, one from Tattoo, Inheritance. one from Scarecrow, uh, Dr. Jack, Tales from the Undead. Inheritance. Inheritance, um, the Baron's Ride with the vampires, uh, yep. the Poison Pen, yep, Poison Pen, and the Guillotine flying through the air. Okay, 
So okay, so I, I missed a, I missed a couple of them, but the episode opens with yeah. all three of our main characters dressed up and ready to party, trying to have a night out when a mysterious Arab character shows up with a mysterious vase, and I love how he's all like surrounded in mystery, and he's like again this mysterious, you know, Middle Eastern character because they're. they're... Um. This belongs to you, yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and it's the, a canopic jar, which is used to store the organs of a mummified person, you know, at, at, during the mummification pro, uh, process. And it has the head of Anubis as the little cork stopper. Correct. Mm-hmm. And Anubis is the god associated with uh, mummification and the afterlife. So he's very closely tied to, you know, the death processes. Um, the mysterious uh, Middle Eastern character that shows up to deliver this—I uh, had his name up, but I, I actually had the other, the other, our other mis- mysterious Middle Eastern character—has <laughs> been in uh, several productions from 1987 till about 2000. Uh, it's still working as of today. A uh, bit part actor, but uh, he played um, the only other TV series that he was in for a long mi- amount of time. Was he played Lazar? In Witchblade, the series, uh, the uh, early uh, 2000s um, TV series based on the um, Top Cow comic book. Yeah, the Witchblade comic book. Yeah, yeah he, he appeared in all 20 episodes, and he appeared in the made-for-TV movie, which uh, which came out a year before the series began. Wow. I was kind of surprised. I was like, I, I don't remember the character of Lazar. Of course, this guy is wrapped up in a you know, a face mask when he appears into the shop, but uh, we are going to cover Witchblade the series at some point once we're finished with Friday the 13th, so I will be looking forward to seeing him in every single episode of the show, because according to IMDb, (laughs) it is the only TV series that he did every single episode of, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Jack's uh, mysterious uh, Egyptian fez-wearing friend is played by Elias Zaru, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, why is he wearing fez? Because fezes are fezes are cool, according to the doctor from Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> and he he wears it very well. Yes, he does. He does. You know, some people can't pull off a fez hat, but he it, it he really rocks it. Uh, um, the character's name Rashid. Yeah, Rashid. Very uh, typical kind of name for. Um, you know the uh, the wise old Egyptian who's got all the sage advice and the uh, know how for the plot devices. Very reminiscent of Indiana Jones's pals uh, that he meets over in the uh, Egyptian Arab countries. Salik. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny is that most of his uh, career is playing the Arab buyer, playing characters like Rashid, Aham, Abraham, Saul. Uh, yeah. Once in a while, he plays a character named Andy, but yeah, it's usually Kasba or uh, Egyptian house speaker or Ch- Chef Laman. Yeah, Iraq officer. You know, things like that. That's pretty much what he's been cast as playing most of his career. Yeah. yeah. So this episode starts off, uh, you know, pretty pretty intense, where they're just trying to put that cursed object into the vault, and the Anubis uh, cork pops off, and green smoke envelops them. Uh, Mickey and Ryan are then trapped in the vault with the green smoke, and uh, you can actually hear the doll in the background saying, go away, get out of my house, before the first flashback starts with the doll. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this doll has been kind of pestering 
uh, Mickey for a while. Every time she, you know, spends at least a little bit of time in the vault, it looks at her. It gives her creepy, you know, vibes, and she's just completely uncomfortable. It's and really it, the yes, sorry. It's really the one object that kind of carries through the show more than any other because every once in a while you'll see it sitting on a shelf or something and it'll just turn its head a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so creepy. <laughs> the um they they uh every time they seem to have some type of flashback to a previous case, they have like convulsions. Um it must be giving yeah. them like a splitting migraine as they are just like, you know, moaning and groaning and flopping around on the floor every time they're uh hit with one of these uh memories that is triggered by the mist. Mhm. Yeah, it's almost as if they're um, being, you know, and described in the episode as if they're being frightened to death. And so when Rashid uh, shows a UV light on the um, wrap that came around the um, Canuba Claws, the UV light shows a hieroglyphic um, scene that basically relates that uh, they have to relive the terror until their hearts burst, and it takes about four hours. Yeah, <laughs> which is great, because I didn't know that there was a time time limit on uh, how long it takes for your heart to burst. <laughs> I didn't know it's either. Very, it's very helpful, you know. Although I would assume that it would vary from person to person. If you were a young person like Mickey and, and Ryan, you know, nope. maybe four hours. If you were Jack... Nope. Maybe an hour. <laughs> nope, four hours. That's four hours. Hour for everybody. It's uh, scientific. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, so then we start in with the clips, and uh, I don't think we really have to go into each of these because we've already done all of these. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. <laughs> we eventually learn, of course, the uh, the villain behind the whole thing is the ghost of Uncle Lewis, which is this is the second time that the ghost of Uncle Lewis yes. has haunted them since the Halloween episode. Uh, the since the Halloween episode being the first time. Yes, you know the dead just won't stay dead. No, yeah. it tends it tends to be a problem in the supernatural shows. <laughs> yes, or, yeah. or else they wouldn't really be supernatural. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, they just kind of be boring dramas. Yeah, it, it it was a bit of a surprise to find out that it was Uncle Lewis behind the whole thing, because uh, I don't remember watching this episode. Probably because, as I, uh, you know, I I found out beforehand that it was a clip show episode, I decided to just skip it, and I don't think I'd ever actually watched it on any uh, run of the show that I've watched before. Wow. Because clip show episodes, I think, are just... I understand that this clip show episode has something to do with the writer's strike and they were trying to scramble together to get something together at the last minute, maybe, to, because the right, the longest writer's strike in the history had happened. But it's just, yeah. you know... You, oh, you I, did, it's not like I, it's a really... It's like a season finale, you know? You, you could have just had the last episode be the season finale. There, there's no overarching... Th- this... This overarching character plot cliffhanger season to season thing didn't really happen until like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or the X Files. Right, um, but I think, but I think as far as just the episode completion, it was really about contracts. They had to fill their contracts, um, and you know they promised this amount of episodes, and damn it, they had to figure out how to fulfill it. Otherwise, they'd be in breach. So, hence the uh, clip show. It is kind of funny that the um, 
there's so much distasteful hatred between Jack and Uncle Lewis, whereas in the very beginning, mm-hmm. it doesn't really seem like that was the case when Jack was talking about Uncle Lewis. Well, I mean, ever since the first episode, <clears throat> when when he meets Mickey and Ryan, you know, he's there basically because he's mad because Uncle Lewis hasn't paid him. So there's definitely animosity there from the beginning. Yeah, and then he just takes on the responsibility since he was at least partially responsible for getting the objects, even though when he received them, they weren't cursed yet. Yeah. So a little bit of that responsibility. And, and, and you know, Ryan and Nikki, they seem like a good couple of kids. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not like uh, he had any uh, family or children that were living that could, yep. you know, he he could, you know, really spend a lot of time with. So, Mickey and Ryan kind of ended up being his uh, surrogate children. Yeah, yep. and I mean, we I I was curious if it was mentioned in a previous episode, but it was like I don't think it was that you know Jack has a child. He had a son with super psychic yep. powers. I I was like going back through other notes in the episode and rereading you know as fast as I could uh, your previous chapters in your book, and I'm like. I don't think this has ever been mentioned before until now. No, not at all. Not at all. This nope. episode it, was the first time. And it was the only time. They never mentioned uh, Jack's child again. Wow. Hmm. J- yeah. Jack's child uh, goes the way of uh, uh, um, Mickey's uh, fiancé and uh, Ryan's many conquests. <laughs> yes, fades off into the distance. You know, it'd be it would be great if like one if one time in uh you know in the in the next season, um if uh if uh, the Amish girl just shows up in the city or whatever, all in, like regular clothes with her hair undone. She's like, I left the Amish for you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> and then she dies because nobody can love Ryan and live. This is true. It gets yeah. really bad for him in season two. I'm sorry, say that again? It gets really bad for him in season two. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we all know his fate if you've seen the show before, but uh, is that yeah. what you're talking about? Or are you talking about other love love interests that shouldn't be dating Ryan the Lion? Uh, no, I'm just saying in, in season two specifically, there were like three or four episodes in a row that he just gets totally shafted. Oh my Aww. god! But uh, but and, and we were talking about this uh, last week, um, uh, uh, at least that uh, out of everyone on this show, with the exception of Jack, I guess, because he did in that one episode, Roby seems to be getting the most um, action in the bedroom. Um, I think. Well, I don't know. Ryan Ryan, Ryan doesn't get anywhere with any of the women he's with. <laughs> they all die or end up, you know, continuing their relationship with God before he can get anywhere with them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And Mickey does tend... Well, look, Mickey's super hot. I mean, <laughs> That's true. Roby that's is just true. living that rock star lifestyle even on the television show she's a fictional character of. <laughs> yep. It's just, I noticed that. I was just like, God. And I haven't gotten into season two yet, but I swear, Roby is the only one who's just like, you know, able to 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 bring home the bacon. <laughs> um, yeah, but hey, hey, here's the thing. 
So Jack is um, one for one, let's just say, in terms of like women who died on him, and, Ro- and Ryan is three for three for losing women, whether they died or continued their ridiculous relationship with God. But everyone Roby has dated has lived. Well, not so far. I mean, who other than other than um, Lloyd, Lloyd and... in the first season? Because the uh, Tim actually died at the end of the episode. Um, let me look through my notes. Wait, here. the cop? Uh, the FBI agent. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay. Oh, yeah. I thought he. Right. I thought Tim, he lived. The FBI agent. I thought he lived. And then. No, he died. Oh. Yeah, I totally forgot about that guy. He was so like. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, and then, I mean, in season two, there's Master of the Skies, in which the guy dies, and then there's also um, the guy in Wedding in Black, who is already dead. He's basically a demon sent there to entice her into um, sex with Satan. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, don't forget the vampire. Oh, yeah, and I guess you could you could count the vampire that uh, enticed Roby as being one of her uh, people as well. Yeah, I'm not gonna, though, because he just enticed her, like, it was total coercion kind yeah. of thing. It wasn't, and, and it wasn't good. In Cupid's Quiver, too, she was enticed, but it was the total cursed yeah. object. Yeah, it was coercive. It wasn't Vampire coercion. Yeah. Vampire. Yeah, we got. We got to make sure we, we we keep it all. We keep it all straight. There's different. There's different types of coercion. There's supernatural coercion, which, according to you know most every piece of fiction ever written, that's okay. You know the Vampire Diaries have yeah. these two smoking hot looking guys, but uh, one of them basically mind rapes and then rapes and then bites and then kills his way through all these women on the show. But we still like him, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but you're not supposed to like him until he turns good and starts dating Elena. Oh, but, yeah. You know. I, I left the show after season three. I was just like, oh, my God. Elena is just like Bella Swan having the most... She, she's she got to be the only... The, the greatest conquest in male history for every guy, creature, and thing to want just her and not the other seven billion people on the planet. Oh, yeah. She is annoying as hell. But, you know, the Vampire Diaries had a good amount of blood and gore and violence, so it made it all worthwhile. There was an article I read once called The, uh, the Greatest Vagina God Ever Made, and it was about Bella Swan and Elena... And like a couple of other just insanely annoying characters, uh, and like what the f is up with these just like women, and why do these vampires and werewolves want them and nobody else? You know it, what I mean? And it, you, it, don't just it's say it's because the writers wrote it that way. <laughs> right. I I think it says it's something about you know the idea of this is the uh, female fantasy kind of thing and. You know, it's personally, it's not my fantasy, but you know, apparently, a lot of chicks dig it. So, well, we were talking about um, this type of uh, trope and stereotype with certain characters when we were talking about uh, another, uh, when we were about to jump over to Spawn, and how there is never any instance where it's always, sorry, there's never any instance on any show 
where the main female characters are constantly rotating out of their bedroom all these men or women, like some of the male characters that we saw on, like, Spawn or some other show, um, where it's mm-hmm. just this constant bevy of hookers every five minutes in and out of the bed <laughs> of the bad guys. And the bad women that we see in some shows, or some good women sometimes, we don't see that that often. They might have one guy a season, which is different, but it's not like every other episode they're banging some new dude. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, all these stereotypes about the the virgin whore kind of thing. And it, it's pretty, I feel like that is pretty standard. It's funny because I've actually, I've been mourning uh, the loss again of X-Files, which ended again this week. Yeah, I haven't um, seen it yet, so don't 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 spoil anything yet. <laughs> I won't spoil anything, but I was reading an article or something with Gillian Anderson, and I guess in season three or four, she wanted a she wanted them to put in a really hot like bed shaking sex scene for her, and Chris Carter was like, "Nope, we've worked way too hard to make Scully, you know, the good girl who's only concerned about work and all that stuff." And uh, which is just kind of, it's a little bit sad that that has to be seen. But I guess, you know, especially in the 90s, it's like that was, um, you know, that's how women were seen. It was very unbalanced. Well, what's the name of the, um, what what is the name of the actress used to date Marilyn Manson, who's currently on Westworld? Oh, uh, Rachel. Oh. uh, No, not Rose McCowan. It's, what is her name? Rachel Evan Wood. There we go. Oh, Rachel Evanwood. Okay, she's on Westworld, right? Yes. Okay, she used to date Marilyn Manson, I believe, right? Yes. Okay, I just want to make sure I got the facts straight for people like, no, she used to date this person. You don't know what you're talking about. Ah, I hate you guys. Okay, anyway, <laughs> so she put out a huge statement, which I absolutely fucking loved when she was doing, I think, Nymphomaniac, maybe. Was she a Nymphomaniac? That I don't know. Okay. Uh, I... I want to say it's her, okay, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, the actress who actually said it, and leave a link below where the quote is. But it was an actress in Hollywood, and again, I believe it's her, who said that Hollywood is afraid of the female orgasm. She has a five-minute masturbation scene in a movie where she brings herself to an actual orgasm by freakishly masturbating off-camera, and she has an insane orgasm, and they cut it to 30 seconds. (gasps) Yeah. And she was, and it was fucking Are you pissed. talking about the Lars von Trier? I think that was Kristen Dunst. Kristen Dunst was in that? Oh, no, she was in a different one. But no, um, Rachel Rachel Evanwood was not in Nymphomania. Okay, so what... Uh, okay, then I don't know the name of the actress, but the, there was an actress who was, like, lip shit pissed. Rachel, I think it was Rachel something or another. Saying, again, it Hollywood is afraid of the probably, female orgasm. I haven't seen the movie, but it was probably Charlotte Gainsborough, because that just seems like something that she would say but it, i don't know anyway yeah well the, the, it just again it rates right up there with with what you said about about excuse me what jillian anderson said mm-hmm. that she wanted this type of scene and she kind of got her wish a little bit in the second the, the the first season of the revival of the x-files when she got to be like re- i know it was a parody and it was like the the creatures like lying to molder 
but that was still yeah. Jalen Anderson acting all very sexy, wearing the push-up bra, and being all like, I like to have sex, I like to have men take pictures of me, and she starts unbuttoning her or her top, whatever, revealing her cleavage and stuff, yeah. which is something Scully never has done, ever! Scully has always been the straight, sexy character. She's never exuberated any type of flaunting of sexuality, ever! And that was fucking awesome. Yeah. Well, that's 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 part of what has been going on. Like, there's this whole thing right now where everyone's discussing, you know, um, how much Chris Carter hates women and hates sex and all this stuff. But I think we're way off track here. No, that's fine. We're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna edit this entire part out anyway. Um, okay, cool. <laughs> we, we're pretty much at the end of this episode as it is, so uh, because this didn't have much to cover, being mostly, you know, being like again, like three quarters of it being, uh, sorry, a quarter of it Clip. being uh, clips. Clips. So that yeah. I kept, I, no, that I had to keep like. I, there is one thing I do want to say, is that uh, or just say, Rashid and and Jack actually do a spell to put Jack into the dream world with Ryan and Mickey. Correct. So he can pull yeah. them out. Now, this scene was extremely reminiscent of the the episode of Constantine where uh, it's called A Whole World Out There where Richie Simpson and John Constantine do pretty much the same thing so that they're able to go into the alternate um, existence and try to pull out the kids from... Uh, or the one remaining surviving one, from this trance. Uh, so I thought this was a very kind of, you know, just a note back on my part after watching Constantine and then watching Rashid and Jack do this type mm-hmm. of spell. Uh, and so, like, he Jack disappears and goes in there, and then that's when you get the information about the sun and, and his powers and etc. And finally, through the Baron's Bride... Uh, flashback, uh, Jack is actually able to pull Ryan and Mickey out of this fantasy world and bring them back home. Uh, so yep. then, you know, everyone is happy at the end of that. Ba-ba! And then, and then Uncle Lewis laughs in the mirror and it breaks. Ha-ha! It leads us to the season two premiere. Ah, <laughs> yes. so it's all connected. Very, very clever. The two objects in question, I obviously, I think we could all say that at some point we were in a crib or a cradle when we were babies, so I don't own one personally. Um, I don't know that if, uh, Elise, uh, if you, do you have children? Did you, do you still have no. your, no, okay. And Mr. Zeneca, you being, no children. no children, okay. And Mr. Zeneca, you being pregnant, you have a, a crib or cradle picked out for the baby? Uh, I personally don't, but the parents do. I actually have a cradle board. Okay. which is a Native American-style uh, cradling system. Ah, gotcha. And uh, I'm assuming that you're not going to be playing any hand that rocks the cradle anytime soon, no? Right? No, okay, no, okay. no. All right, just want to make I was going absolutely <laughs> sure. I don't own an urn that I could smoke out of and get high enough to pretend that I'm in a dream world or have flashbacks. You, Elise? Uh, not the last time I checked. Okay. Well, I will, uh, I will hire a, uh, creepy looking, um, Middle Eastern man to deliver one to you if you wish. (laughs) All right. Okay. All right. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll make sure we pack it in with some, uh, you know, some of that extra good stuff that we have legalized here in Massachusetts if you get what I'm meaning. (laughs) Wink, 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 nudge, nudge. 
It's legal here in California. All right, then. Then we'll be smoking it up in California, Massachusetts and having flashbacks. Actually, I'm going to disclaimer right now. If you're smoking anything and you're having flashbacks, you really should go see a doctor and can stop smoking what you're smoking. I'm not joking because it's actually a bad LSD laced thing of marijuana, probably. Mr. Seneca, do you have a urn? Uh, I do not have an urn. I have plenty of vases, but no urns. Um... And I don't have anything with Anubis on it either. Do you have a fez? Um, uh, I don't actually have a fez. I do have embalming tools. Um, you know, the tool that you kind of stick up the nose to grab the brain and pull the brain out of the nostril. I have one of those. Ah, gotcha. That's useful. Yes, and uh, for anyone curious, this is what I was talking about earlier. Right then, I have questions. But number one is this. What in the name of sanity have you got on your head? It's a fez. I wear a fez now. Fezes are cool. Oh! And that is the doctor explaining why he wears fezes, and then, of course, it being blasted away by his future wife, River Swong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all we have for these uh, last two episodes of Season 1 of Friday the 13th, the TV series. And we'll be back with Friday the 13th, the series, in late June or early July, roughly, after we do Spawn, the animated series, starring Keith David as Al Simmons, a.k.a. The Spawn. Um, thank you once again to Elise Wax for joining us for the Dead TV podcast coverage of Friday the 13th, the series. Hopefully we'll see you back maybe in June or July, if you're not busy, to uh, pick us up for season two. Sounds yeah. great. I'd love to. That and way we can, can plan it. Elise's book, uh, Curious Goods Behind the Scenes of Friday the 13th, the series, on Amazon, hard copy. That's where I got mine. Um, you know, be sure to pick up a copy. It's very interesting to read all of this background information uh, for all you Friday the 13th fans. And uh, It is an obsessive journey through the show. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Love it. Um, it, 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 it is uh, incredibly in detail for this uh, coverage of the show. Um, but yeah, we'll be back in um, a couple weeks with Spawn the Animated Series, but we'll return to... We'll be back in two weeks with Spawn the Animated Series, and then we'll, then we'll be back to Friday the 13th in about uh, in several weeks' time for the Dead TV Podcast. Where can people find uh, you, Elise, to contact you about uh, your book? Um, if you want to reach me, you can do it through um, my website, which is EliseWax.com, uh, or my Twitter, which is Elise, at EliseWax. It's A-L-Y-S-E-W-A-X. And where people find you, Mr. Zeneca? I'm on Twitter at, at @elegantlykinky. And I am at the Dead TV Podcast uh, radio show uh, Facebook page, as well as Radio of Horror. And you can find me on Twitter at ChrisDSAV. And don't forget, we also have a Dead TV Podcast uh, Patreon, which is connected to Radio of Horror. So go into Patreon, type in Dr. Chris's Radio Horror, and become a sustaining member. Or if you haven't happened, if you happen to have a business that you would like to promote, you can... Uh, check us out there as well and uh, send us an email at that Chris D sorry you can send us an email at that radio horror at gmail.com uh, if you have a business and you'd like to have it promoted on the dead TV podcast good night everybody good night bye <laughs>